Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. A uh, couple of things went wrong before we started worship. Um, some of them affected Peter. Some of them affected me. Turns out the printer has moved, and I can't find the printer cable, which means I do not have notes. And so for the first time ever, I am going to attempt to preach off a laptop. I hope that the screensaver <laughs> doesn't fox me. Um, time will tell. A uh, couple of other things. Obviously, coming here today, uh, things have changed in terms of uh, seating arrangements. Don't have our favorite row sitting right behind us, but I heard them chattering uh, during an interval, and so I do know that they are all here. It's great to have you guys here and see you guys. Um, but it's also great to have you guys so much closer to the stage. Normally, Baptists fill up from the back of the room, and so with the building, everyone's a little bit nearer, so I don't feel like I need to shout quite as loud in order to reach you. We now come to the reading and the teaching of God's Word, which isn't separate to the worship that we have just been singing and praying and reading. Now, the preaching of God's Word is the high point of our worship service this morning. And so because it is an act of worship, it's right that even before we come to the reading of God's Word, even before we come to the teaching of God's Word, we bow our heads and pray to Almighty God, asking Him to do what only he can do. Let's pray. Indeed, Lord God, as I think of your word, I'm reminded that all men are like grass and their glories are like the flowers of the field. The flowers wither and fall, the grass that withers away. But the word of the Lord stands forever. And upon your word, Lord God, this morning we would stand as your people knowing that it is without error, knowing, Lord God, that it is sufficient for all matters of life and, do and doctrine. Lord, would you teach us by your Spirit? Would you guide us into truth? Would you guard us from error for your own namesake? Would you be glorified in this place this morning? And most of all, would you show us Christ? Show us him in all of his glory and splendor that we, your people, might worship him this day, even as we will worship him forever and ever in the life to come. These things we pray in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. He is our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Well, before I get to the reading of Scripture, let me start with, a, with an introduction. It's a story from history. It occurs around the 4th century, the Christian world faced immense turmoil. A heresy had emerged which undermined the deity, the divinity of Jesus Christ. On the one side of the debate was the villain. His name was Arius. He was a distinguished churchman and scholar. On the other side of the debate was our hero, a man named Athanasius, a brilliant theologian. And the question is, could Athanasius hold fast to the gospel in the face of deception? 
at one stage, this controversy over the deity of Jesus threatened the political stability of the whole Roman Empire. And so Emperor Constantine convened and presided over the Council of Nicaea. The outcome of that council was the Nicene Creed, which was an affirmation of the Athanasian position. Now, while the Council of Nicaea ended in victory for Athanasius, the the debate between these two men raged on. Athanasius became the defender of the faith and faced very real challenges. A later council, the Council of Arminium, all but reversed the Council of Nicaea. Over time, the Athanasian majority waned and became a minority. Emperor Constantine himself leaned in his later life towards Arianism. In fact, his his son was openly an Arian and his successor. Athanasius was the target of opponents to the Nicene Creed. Emperors turned against him. Bishops turned against him. On five occasions, he was banished from the city of Alexandria. It seemed at stages like Arian could win. And yet, despite the opposition, Athanasius stood resolute. The purity of the gospel was at stake. The defender of the gospel bolstered the front lines of theological debate. And with unwavering zeal and divine conviction, Athanasius wrote and proclaimed the truth relentlessly. His battle cry, his rallying cry was, Christ is not a creature, he is the creator. And it won the day. Today, we explore 2 Corinthians chapter 11, which draws some parallels to Athanasius's unwavering faith. We learn that Paul, from Paul, that we must be zealous And we must be faithful and we must be persistent in our faith. That we too must hold fast to the gospel even as contemporary deceptions and challenges rage around us. Now for those of you who are listening carefully, I heard when I said 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the rustle of pages uh, as you went and found your uh, your place. Indeed, we're going to read through uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 from the first verse to the 15th verse this morning. But let me state my argument right up front so that you know what I'm trying to convince you of. It is this. If you're a note taker, now would be the time to put pen to paper. Hold fast to the gospel in the face of deception. Hold fast to the gospel in the face of deception. And this is the path that we're going to take through the text that we look at this morning. We're going to look at three qualities of gospel faithfulness. Three qualities of gospel faithfulness. And the first is jealous for allegiance. 
To, to be faithful for the gospel, one must have the quality of jealousness for allegiance. And we will see that from verse 1 to verse 6. We, we will see that Paul is fired up with godly jealousy and zeal because the Corinthians are rejecting Jesus, rejecting truth, and rejecting him. The second point that we're going to look at is from verse 7 to verse 11. And it's a quality that says if we're to have gospel faithfulness, we must be committed to proclamation. Committed to proclamation. The Corinthians, you see, benefited from Paul at others' expense. But the gospel, friends, is worth it. And love compelled him to do it. And then our final point this morning is from verse 12 to verse 15. And it's this persistence despite opposition. Persistence despite opposition. Paul won't stop because the false apostles won't stop. They are deceitful like Satan and they will be judged. So three qualities of gospel faithfulness. And with all of that said, we're going to read through the text beginning at verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Jealous for allegiance. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. But indeed do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. For I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray. From sincerity and purity to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit than the one you received, or you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. For I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles, But even if I am unskilled in speaking, yet I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. That's the first point, jealous for allegiance. Here's the second point, committed to proclamation. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. And I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of our care. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. That's the second point, committed to proclamation. Here's the third point, persistent despite opposition. And what am I doing? I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, 
For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. In this text before us, there are three qualities of gospel faithfulness. And the first quality is jealousy for allegiance. Jealous allegiance, verse 1 to 6. Read verse 1 again with me, just to make sure that we've got it firmly settled in our minds. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. What gets an authentic gospel preacher hot under the collar? What makes an authentic gospel preacher's blood boil? It's clear from my perspective, from WhatsApp videos that do the rounds, that some popular preachers in South Africa are triggered by South African politics, are triggered by South African economics, by South African elections, by the South African drought, by societal shift in our country, or by whatever news cycle has captured the attention of their captured audience. But friends, real gospel preachers get up in arms when the gospel that they love or the converts they have won come under attack. We see that in verse 1, in the first half of verse 2. They're full of emotion. I feel divine jealousy, Paul says. I'm fired up with godly zeal. I've been triggered. Paul's divine jealousy is a godly zeal. The word jealousy translates the Greek word zealos, zeal. Excitement, ardor, fervor. Paul stands at the ready to defend his message and those who have placed their faith in it. Paul is fired up with zeal. Continue to read with me the second half of verse 2. He says, and this is a reason, it starts with the word for. He's giving a reason for his godly jealousy. And we're going to see three reasons uh, in this next five verses. For I betrothed you to the one, uh, to one husband, to present you as a virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from sincerity and purity to Christ. And Paul's concern is about the state of the Corinthians' marriage, not to one another but their covenantal relationship to Jesus Christ, their Lord and their Savior. There is an illusion here to, in verse 2 to the marriage metaphor that we often see in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God is described as the husband of Israel. And the metaphor emphasizes God's love towards Israel and Israel's required faithfulness toward him. Israel's idolatry in the Old Testament is pictured as her being unfaithful to God as she whores after other gods. 
Now, in the same way, yeah, Christ is described as the husband to the Corinthians. And this metaphor emphasizes his love toward them and their required faithfulness toward him. The picture is that the Corinthians are being unfaithful to Christ as they whore after false teachers and their false teaching. Their marriage to Jesus Christ is falling apart. And Paul is concerned about the Corinthian souls. Not in a physical sense, but in an eternal sense. There's an illusion in verse 3 to the fall, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. The serpent who had deceived Eve, leading to rebellion against God, resulted in a physical death. Well, in the same way in our passage, false teachers with their false teaching are deceiving the Corinthians, leading to the rejection of Jesus Christ, which will result in eternal death. Their souls are in mortal danger. Can you see how false teachers with their false teaching could lead you astray? Paul is fired up with godly zeal because the Corinthians are rejecting Jesus. Second reason why Paul is fired up with this godly zeal starts in verse 4. It reads, read with me in your own Bibles, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus other than the one we have proclaimed, or you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Traveling teachers were very common in Jewish culture. The Apostle John wrote an entire letter about how to receive good men and how to reject bad men. You can read that in 2 John. There's a warning in verse 4. It's the same as the warning, really, that Paul gives to the Galatians, where he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. There are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. A different Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel is no Jesus at all, is no spirit at all, is no gospel at all. Don't reject, shift your allegiance. Don't reject scripture for tradition. Don't reject faith for works. Don't reject grace for law. Don't reject Jesus for anyone else. Don't reject God's glory for your own. Paul is fired up with godly zeal because the Corinthians are rejecting truth in verse 4. Verse 5 and verse 6. Read along with me. For, again, the reason... I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles. But, in, but even if I am unskilled in speaking, yet I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. First a note on the word apostle. Apostle means simply sent out one. In the New Testament... We see the word used in 
two different ways. First, the apostle refers to the 12. We're very familiar with them. The 12 held a unique position in church history. They saw, witnessed with their own eyes, the resurrected Christ. They were chosen by his Holy Spirit. And signs and wonders authenticated their ministry. Together with Paul, they laid the foundation of the church. There are no apostles like this today. Now, the second way that the word apostle is used in the New Testament is a reference to general messengers of Christ. And they named all over the New Testament scriptures. Barnabas is called an apostle. Andronicus is called an apostle. Junius is called an apostle. Titus is called an apostle. Epaphrodites is called an apostle. These were like modern day missionaries. Yeah, the apostle in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. Yeah, the word apostle is used in this second general messenger sense. In verse 5, Paul is sarcastically describing as a plain apostle himself compared to these super apostles who had presented themselves and we learned about last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Super apostles come with a super gospel. Maybe it's the gospel plus a little bit of self-effort. Maybe it's the gospel less a little bit of Christ and more a little bit of me. Maybe it sounded great on the ear, but its fruit would be death. In verse 6, Paul says this plain apostle himself came with a plain gospel. Friends, have you observed the false teachers of our day adding to the gospel? Paul's message is don't allow false teachers to lead you into false teaching, but remain faithful to the gospel and to the gospel preacher you have heard it from. Paul is fired up because the Corinthians are rejecting him, verse 5 and 6. Now in this text, there are three qualities of gospel faithfulness. The first is jealous for allegiance. Verse 1 to 6. Now the second is committed to proclamation. Verse 7 to 11. Read verse 7 together with me. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel for you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden Anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. And I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Paul's teaching was different to the false teachers. So was his modus operandi. The New Testament talks a lot about false teachers. It calls them hirelings. It says that they are in it for gain, that they are greedy lovers of money, but not poor. He raised his support from other churches. And where necessary, and when necessary, he worked with his own hands to provide for his own needs. Does this differ from what we see in the church today? 
on any given Sunday in synagogues of Satan all over Pretoria, so-called apostles in silk suits with shiny shoes fleece the sheep they're supposed to shepherd. Every time a snake oil salesman says sow and reap, or calls for a seed of faith or a divine exchange, they out themselves as hidden reefs at your love feasts, As they feast on you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars of whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Paul's Proclamation to the Corinthians came at others' expense. Verse 7 to 9. Read verse 10 together with me. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Archaea. Earlier on, I asked the question, what gets an authentic gospel preacher hot under the collar? Now I'm asking the question, what inspires an authentic gospel preacher? What excites an authentic gospel preacher? And the answer is kingdom advancement, kingdom gain. The Lord had said that Paul was his chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Carrying the name of Christ to the Gentiles was Paul's overwhelming concern. He declared that message first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles. That they should repent and turn to God performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Paul could not be silenced. Paul would not be silenced. Not in Corinth, not in Archaea, not in all the world. Because the gospel must advance. The gospel will advance. If that took the collective sacrifices of all the churches in the world, or the personal sacrifice of Paul himself, it was money well spent. Paul is committed to the proclamation of Christ, committed to kingdom advancement. Proclamation of the gospel is worth the sacrifice. Verse 10. Read verse 11 together with me. And why? Paul asks. Because I do not love you? God knows I do. What motivates? Evangelism. What fuels the sacrifice? What drives the gospel preacher? What can drive you to share the gospel with your family and with your friends and with your co-workers? One thing, love. Love for God and love for the lost. Love for God motivates us toward evangelism. Work forward with me. We know from Scripture in 1 John chapter 4 that God is love. And we know that Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, Matthew chapter 22. And Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, John chapter 14. 
Jesus then commanded his disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, Matthew chapter 28. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, Luke chapter 24. Now, work backwards through those verses. Evangelism is a commandment. Evangelism is a commandment which we obey. Evangelism is a commandment which we obey because we love God. Evangelism is a commandment which we obey because we love God who is love. Love for God motivates evangelism. Love for the lost motivates evangelism. Mike Riccardi writes the motivation of evangelism. Now, after saying that love for God is the foremost commandment, Jesus proceeded, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Friends, true believers are characterized by sacrificial love. This love will selflessly and compassionately proclaim the news that Christ has laid down his life on behalf of sinners. Speaking of the command to love your neighbor as yourself, Pastor Mark Deva offers a helpful explanation. What does such love require from us? It seems to require that what we want for ourselves, we want for others that we love too. If we desire to love God with perfect affection, you will desire that of your neighbor too. But you are not loving your neighbor as yourself if you are not trying to persuade him toward the greatest and best aspect of your own life, your reconciled relationship with God. If you are a Christian, you are pursuing Christ. You are following him and you desire him. And you must therefore also desire this highest good for everyone that you love. It is love that requires us to pursue the best for those we love. And that must include sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Love gives what is best. And Christ is what is best for everyone. Friend, are you concerned about your own personal lack of commitment to evangelistic zeal? The answer isn't to whip yourself into action. The answer is Jesus. Love him more and you will be compelled to share the gospel with your family and with your friends and with your co-workers that you love too. Love compelled Paul to proclaim the gospel, verse 11. Now in this text, there are three qualities of gospel faithfulness. And the first is jealous for allegiance, that was verse 1 to 6. The second is committed to proclamation, verse 7 to 11. Now the third is persistence despite opposition, verse 12 to 15. Read verse 12 together with me. And what I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms 
as we do. False teachers and their followers are zealous. They won't stop. Think of the Jehovah Witnesses setting up their little book stands on the corner of busy walkways. The way young Mormon men walk around your neighborhood knocking on doors. The way new apostolic reformation proselytes chase after their apostles and their prophets and their healings. The way crazy charismatics eat snakes and grass. False teachers and their followers are zealous and they won't stop. The false teachers were zealous. And the question now is, is zeal a bad thing? Zeal is bad when zeal is blind. Zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Zeal is bad when zeal is self-seeking. Religion as a means of gain. Zeal is bad when zeal is misguided. When it pursues disputable matters and traditions rather than obedience. Zeal is bad when zeal is impulsive, inspired by impulse reaction rather than thoughtful conviction. The false teachers were zealous, but Paul was too. Paul would not be outzealed by the false teachers. If zeal is blind, then Paul would promote knowledgeable zeal. Not based on ignorance, but based on an understanding of truth. If zeal is self-seeking, then Paul would promote a Godward zeal. Zeal which cannot bear to see God's reputation harmed or his honor stolen by another. If zeal is misguided, then Paul would promote an obedient zeal. A zeal which boils over with a holy affection for God and for man. If zeal, if bad zeal is impulsive, then Paul will promote a persistent zeal. A zeal which cannot be quenched no matter what wind blows against it or what water is poured over it. A fearless zeal, spiritually strengthened in opposition and resistant to discouragement. A passionate zeal, standing for truth even when that truth is despised or opposed. Paul won't stop. Because the false teachers won't stop, verse 12. Read verse 13 together with me. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, because even Satan disguises himself as, a, as, a, as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Verse 14 draws upon Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. Depictions of Satan described there as the day star, described as the sun of the dawn, described as the signet of perfection, described as being full of wisdom and perfect in beauty as having every precious stone as his covering. Well, just as Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, the false prophets disguise themselves as messengers of Christ. They look like us and they sound like us, but don't be fooled. They're not us. Jude writes that they are hidden reefs, that false teachers are dangerous, that they're jagged rocks lurking just below the water. 
Sail close enough to them and they'll shipwreck your faith. They shepherds who feed themselves. The, the, self, uh, the, the false teachers are selfish. A shepherd cares for his sheep, but false teachers eat the sheep. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are waterless clouds swept along by winds. They're empty. They promise freedom, but they deliver slavery. Why in South Africa, a land filled with professing Christians, do we see the manifestation of every kind of sin? It's because we've run after man of gods that are nothing but charlatans and snake oil salesmen. The promise of spiritual enrichment they make, but they are spiritually bankrupt and can deliver nothing. They are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. The false teachers are dead. The trees, they bud in spring. They produce in late summer. By autumn, the fruit is harvested or drops to the ground. By late autumn, the trees have no leaves, no flower, no fruit. They appear dead. Well, these false teachers are like fruitless trees, but they're not just they don't just look fruitless. They are fruitless because they are really dead. And they're not just dead. They've been pulled up by the stump. They are absolutely lifeless. They are rootless as well. These men are beyond rescue. They are wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. These false teachers are, are dirty. All they produce is filth, like the crashing of waves on the coast. These men make a lot of noise. But they only produce that ugly foam that washes up along the shoreline. Their many words only produce sin and guilt and shame. Just like their father, the devil, false teachers are deceitful. The last part of verse 15. Their end will correspond to their deeds. False teachers, friends, are like wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. False teachers are doomed. The stars act as a guide for travelers at night. But these false teachers don't lead anyone anywhere. They mislead everyone everywhere. These men are like comets that wander around the night sky. After a time, they, they fizzle out into the darkness. They, they point people toward the broad road that leads to destruction. And a terrifying reality awaits them, that whilst they will be consigned to separation from God for the falsehoods that they have believed and taught, they will not go alone. They will take the masses of their followers that they have collected with them to the grave. False teaching has consequences. And false teachers have victims. False teachers will be judged, verse 15, just like Satan. Now in this text, we've considered three qualities of gospel faithfulness. The first quality was jealousy for allegiance. The second quality was a commitment to proclamation. And the third was a persistence despite opposition. Brothers and sisters, by way of application, Paul gives us a wonderful example yet to follow in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Even as he was jealous for allegiance, even as he was committed to proclamation, even as he was persistent despite opposition, we should be too. How can you be jealous for allegiance? Well, do not waver in your faith. 
evaluate the preaching and the teaching that you expose your family to. The kinds of sermons that you listen to, the kinds of books which you read, the kinds of resources online that you engage with. How can you be committed to proclamation? Now, for the Hill, this requires a little bit of work. It's to join EE3. EE3 is our evangelism training classes for learning how to share your faith with practical opportunities to share your faith. It's run at Arcadia on Monday evenings. As your love for Jesus grows, so does your desire to obey his command to go and share your faith with family and with friends and with co-workers. Demonstrate a commitment to proclaiming Jesus to the world and join E3. Uh, I've sent out on WhatsApp uh, a um, kind of reflection handout. And in there is a link to a sign-up form for for E3. Um, I encourage you to go and do that. Thirdly, how can you persist in persistent, uh, how can you be persistent despite opposition? Can I encourage you to study accounts of biblical figures who faced opposition and remained steadfast in their faith? And accounts from church history, like the story of Athanasius, the story of Martin Luther and others. One way to do that is to read short biographies. And on the same Note, which I sent out to the WhatsApp group this morning, I've included a link to a series of short biographies written by John Piper. Um, And again, I'd encourage you to read them as you hear how other people have stood firm and holded fast to the gospel despite opposition. Application to unbelievers in the room. Friends, the plain gospel message is that Christ died for your sins. And that he rose again in victory from the grave. You must believe in him for salvation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 1 to 6, Paul exhorted the Corinthians to remain faithful to the gospel. This rests on an understanding of the gospel. Elsewhere, Paul writes and explains what the gospel is. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached you, unless you believed in vain. The gospel is the foundation of salvation, provided you hold fast to it. And then he goes on to write, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The core elements of the gospel are plain. Jesus died for your sins. And Jesus rose in victory over the grave. Friend, the call on your life, the command to you is to repent this day and believe that you might be spared from the wrath that is to come. The plain gospel message is that Christ died for your sins. And that he rose in victory from the grave. You must believe in him for salvation. In conclusion. Today. In this. Very church. We we stand on the shoulders of giants. Giants like Paul. And giants like Athanasius. His resolute defense of the Nicene Creed. And the divinity of Christ. 
ensured that the gospel message remained pure and unadulterated in his time. Athanasius' legacy reminds us that in the face of deception, we must hold fast to the core truths of the faith. As we navigate this world filled with deceptions and distractions, let us, like Athanasius, be zealous for allegiance to Christ, committed to the proclamation of the true gospel, be persistent despite oppositions, and just like Athanasius' unwavering faith shaped the course of Christian history, so too can our fidelity to the gospel impact our generation for the glory of God into the ages to come. Hold fast to the gospel in the face of deception. Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, deception abounds all around us. We have just to turn on our TVs and flick to religion channels and we see all manner of falsehood being proclaimed in the name of Christ. We have but to walk into bookstores all over our city and on the shelves professing to be Christian literature is all manner of heresy. Father God, it does seem at times as if we are in the vast minority and the majority is in ascendancy. And yet we have this promise. Jesus will win and be victorious. And we have this command, hold fast to the plain gospel, even in the face of deception. Lord God, by your spirit within us, would you enable us to do so, that you would be glorified in our lives and in our testimonies, both in this life and in the life to come. This we pray in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. He is our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.